Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Um, today, I am pleased to be joined by another ruminant nutritionist, and maybe even more so ruminant nutrition. Actually, the thing that I admire most about today's guest is his cufflinks and bow tie, and we'll get to that perhaps. So, um, Dr. Brandon Smith who uh, teaches at Tarleton State University in Stephenville, uh, Texas. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Great. I hope you'll say that in an hour from now. Um, Why not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we, we met, we belong to many of the same professional societies, um, American Forage and Grassland Council, the Crop, uh, Science Society of America, the American Society of Animal Science, um, the Agronomy Society. The Agronomy Society. Um, we, we run a lot of the same circles. It, 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 imagine that. That's remarkable. <laughs> um, who would have thought? So first of all, you're not a native of texas so no by far not a native of texas i, I didn't um, mean anything by that um oh no no i didn't <laughs> take it that way i i have to put that disclaimer out because some of the texans will come after me if i claim to be a native texan yeah, uh, nancy to, and i have only lived in oregon since 1986 so we're just long-term visitors as far exactly, as oregonians exactly. are concerned. and it's even worse in texas i'm not even sure that they will classify me as a visitor i mean you almost need a passport to go over here they uh, they take it very seriously, and I applaud them for it. it. It's an amazing place to be. But no, I am not originally from here. So I'm originally from extreme southeast Alabama, uh, about three or four miles from Florida, about 30 miles from Georgia, right in the heart of the wiregrass area of the tri-state region. So Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. Um, grew up on a small cow-calf operation. Uh, just kind of raised it. It was what you would call now a hobby farm. We just did it because we enjoyed it. It was not our primary income by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, my family for, I guess I was the third generation. We were all living on the same property. It just, it, it was that family operation and um, ended up making my way out to Texas as I grew in my career. Mm. So was that where you got the desire to end up in forages and, and ruminant animal agriculture, or did you kind of leave with a different idea in mind and ended up kind of coming back? To it? I, it's kind of a yes and no on that one. So when I left home, I, I had all intentions. I went to Auburn University. Um, when I got there, my intention, and they're still recording somewhere floating around on a local uh, TV show, where I said I was going to get a degree in animal science, a master's in ag education. And I told my ag teacher I was coming back for his job. And we, he and I had already had a discussion that as soon as I finished, I wanted back in the hometown. And uh, honestly, that's what drove me. It, it was not necessarily the passion for ruminant animal agriculture or the passion for forages. It was a passion for agricultural education that kept driving me forward. Uh, when I got there, what kind of spun me around and got me into this area was that being a part of the Honors College at the time, which, you know, let's just say that I was a member of the Honors College when I got there and I wasn't when I left, and we'll let the rest of it fill itself in. But um, I had to do a research project, an independent research project as an undergraduate, and I was a bit of a stubborn uh, young man, uh, well, I still am. I just can't claim the young part anymore. Um, I wanted to make sure that that research project was something that came out of my mind. I wanted to develop something. I didn't want to just tie on to someone else's project, take on part of their research. I wanted it to be something that I had come up with. And, you know, coming from the area I come from, I didn't know a lot of people who had gotten into university research. So I didn't know where to begin, where to start. I come from an area where when you got a bachelor's degree, that was great. You, you were among the well-educated people of the area. So 
I get up there and I spent months in between classes. I would be on the phone with my dad. I, he, he drove UPS truck for a living. He ended up having to buy a Bluetooth ear set just so he and I could keep conversing back and forth. Part of it was that homebody thing, but the other part was I was bouncing ideas. And the idea I had was when I got there, I was doing a double major in animal science and agronomy. And I wanted that research project to be able to tie those two things together. I wanted to do something that would tie both degrees because my opinion was if I was going to pursue those degrees, I needed to give credence to both of them. I didn't need to be favored to one side or the other. I needed something that would tie both together. And I ended up being able to put kind of some ideas together. And I just approached a professor and said, hey, I'm interested in research. I don't want to tie on to anybody else's. I want to design my own and laid out a file folder of profiles of university professors. And I said, okay, I've looked online and here are the professors in this area. Who do you recommend? Let's put a committee together and let's go for it. And so that was about October of my freshman year. By May of that year, I had an undergraduate committee. And we had a ruminant nutritionist, a forage plant breeder, Don Ball, who's actually your contemporary in the forage agronomy area, and then the original professor I'd approached, Beth Gertal. And diving into that research area is what drove me. That's when I learned that ag education is still what drives me, but it was taking it to that next level. I was never going to be satisfied going back to high school and just teaching out the textbook. I wanted to be on the forefront where we were discovering things. I wanted to be on that area where we were adding to the body of knowledge, not just transferring the body of knowledge, but adding to it. So I ended up moving down that route and tying those two degrees together. I, I tell people most of the time that I backed my way into this. This was completely backward on how I arrived where I am now because it was never the intention. This was never where I was supposed to end up or what I had intended to be doing, but I backed my way into it, and now I have developed this passion for it. But it all stems from that passion for agricultural education. Okay. And so now at Tarleton State University, you are primarily teaching and primarily yes, so undergraduates. I, um, yes, yes. In my role here, I am primarily teaching, so I'm an 80% teaching, 20% research faculty member. I'm in my fourth year now, so most of my teaching is revolved around undergraduate education. I teach, um, it's shifted over the time since I've been here. We finally leveled out now in year four, and I've got a, set of, a slate of classes I teach all the time now, but I teach generally two undergraduate classes and a graduate class every semester. So I teach our undergraduate principles of nutrition and applied nutrition, or what would have been feeds and feeding, depending on what university you're at. I teach those. I teach the undergraduate pastures and forages class. And on the graduate level, I teach all of our ruminant nutrition classes. And then I'm our resident statistician. So I, I picked that one up from that forage breeder I said I worked with. He um, instilled in me a love for statistics. Interesting. Okay, there's a lot of ways we could go with that. But um, I guess a question, and we exchanged emails prior. So if if this isn't something you can pick up, don't worry about it. But um, okay. I, I got to give, obviously, remotely, a lecture to another forages class. And what I tried to do was encourage undergraduate students to think about the 2050 goals that are out there in front of us from UN and other agencies where they say things like, you know, doubling food production, you know, two-third increase in the demand for animal source protein. You know, at the same time, we have pressures on our agricultural lands, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I tried to make the case that we're only going to achieve those goals by improving productivity and efficiency of ruminant animal agriculture globally. So um, how... What sorts of things are you seeing in terms of opportunities to encourage people, undergraduate students to get involved in agriculture? I mean, I think of what Carl Hovland did for me to change the course of my career. 
Um, and, and so it, it, it's a unique opportunity that you have, and I'm just interested in, in any thoughts you have along that line. One thing that I do that I've approached, and I've had the opportunity to do that because we are a primarily undergraduate institution, is I don't offer a lot of my own ideas to the students. I mean, in the classroom, I do. In the classroom, I give them a lot of my own ideas. We'll go off script. Uh, my students are starting to learn how to get me off script very easily. But if they pick up on the right thing, we'll go off script and I'll go on, okay, this is not in your textbook, but here's what I know from this paper and this paper and this paper, and I believe it leads to this. So we'll end up going down that route. But when it comes to the research side, getting them involved beyond the classroom, I sit back and listen a lot. So my first four graduate, four or five graduate students and the first 10 undergraduates that I've had to do research for me, none of them have been working on something that was my own. It was never one of my ideas that I pitched them and said, hey, I'm interested in this. Why don't you go do it? It was always, they walked in my office and said, I'm interested in doing research. I said, cool. What do you want to do? Here's the area I work in. What do you want to do? And I let them kind of piece some things together. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But we've come up with some interesting ideas, things that I wish I'd have been able to do. And I did in a way because I did kind of help develop my own research when I was coming through. But them being able to shape their own research, we've gotten some really interesting ideas and it's helped develop what I do here. So my main area, even though I do have that background in forages like yourself, and I do have that training in rumen nutrition, my main area of research now has been in byproduct feeds. I've been looking at byproduct feeds, so not necessarily the grazing animal, but how can we take something that will otherwise be a waste and get it into the diet of the ruminant animal? So upcycling, converting something into a usable material. And that's really drawn the interest of the students, something that's very outside the norm, very outside the box. It's earned me several laughs when we get to these meetings and some of me or my students are presenting. You know, you go through the abstract book and you've got your typical ruminant nutrition studies, things you expect to see. And then all of a sudden you get down here and we're in siling newspaper and trying to see if that works as a feed source. And all of a sudden it's like, where in the world did this come from? What loony bin did they get this guy out of? And the answer is the loony bin of Geneva County, Alabama. <laughs> that, that's the loony bin I came from. But anyway, it's uh, we end up kind of breaking the mold, breaking the norm. And I've learned that that has been the driver for a lot of students because they picked up on that. They see me with these off-the-wall ideas of, hey, this is crazy. I might not get a lot of respect for it in the scientific community, but let's go investigate it. And then they start down that line of thinking. And all of a sudden, they'll come into my office and say, hey, I know you were working on that, but what about this over here? What happens to that? So we end up looking at a lot of waste products and, well, what do they do with it now? And so we go on some Google searches and run down some rabbit holes and, okay, well, I don't know what they do with it. Nobody can tell me what they do with it. It's just a waste product. It goes somewhere. Well, do you think we could use it? And the answer to that is always yes. We can always use it. It's just a matter of, can we get it to stick? Um, we, we always say that we're looking for the next distiller's grains. I, I preach to them that... 60, 70 years ago, distiller's grains was something that nobody wanted. We were making ethanol. This was just a waste. This was the thing that was left over at the end. They might slop the hogs with it. They might give it to a local dairyman, but it was not a commodity. We weren't trying to ship this around the country. And then all of a sudden, it took one lunatic professor to say, hey, I wonder. And now it's a commodity that we base most of our pricing on. Okay, so let's let's maybe um, look, compare and contrast ruminant okay. digestion physiology with monogastric. And, and so when somebody will say, as they frequently do, if we um, look, think of how much more grain would be, be available or food would be available for humans, if we didn't feed these animals in animal agriculture. So there's a couple things there I'm prompting for, the difference between food and feed, the difference sure. between ruminant utilizable and human utilizable, and then even the quality of the product that comes from ruminant animal or any animal agriculture versus the 
feed stuff that goes in that arguably w could be utilizable by humans. Okay. Well, you're right. There, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, that's that's almost the entire semester of animal nutrition. And uh, but I love it. I mean, that that's the area that I love teaching about. That that's what I really like getting across. So let's start with that food versus feed deal. The difference is you can give any animal that we're dealing with food. Human edible food can go to an animal very easily. Very seldom does it do that. And a lot of that comes down to, you know, yes, we may make some um, assumptions or may make some decisions based on ecological, based on psychological. Most of it comes down to economical. If we're producing a food source, something that can be used by humans, we're not going to usually, normally, give it to animals because the price point is not there. If we take something that was intended grown for humans and feed it to animals, it's going to cost the animal producer more. And if there's one thing that an animal producer is, is not, is they are not fiscally stupid. They're not stupid at all, but they are definitely not fiscally or economically stupid. They're not going to pay for something that's not going to provide a return. Feed, on the other hand, is something that we're going to give to animals. We grew it for animals, we're going to give it to animals. Does that mean that it could have gone into human consumption? Sometimes. Sometimes not. Depends on what it is we're talking about. So you've got that distinction. And that distinction comes into, goes into your next point of if we're go going to get into this doubling of the population, this two-thirds increase in meat animal production, in demand for animal-produced proteins, do we need to convert land, more land into producing feed? And is that going to take away from human food use? And my answer to that is probably not. The land that we currently have for animal feed production is okay. We're not hurting for land for producing food for humans. If we were, your crop producers would be taking it out of feed production and putting it into food production because their margins would be higher. So you take a specialty crop that's going to go straight to humans, take carrots, strawberries, blueberries, something that we know is not going to be a feed source, but is going to go straight to humans, there's a much higher margin on that. It's more specialized crop, higher margin across the board. So if we had a demand for that, it's a capitalistic type idea. When there is a demand, someone's going to increase the supply. So if we had a demand, we'd already be moving it over. Most of the things we're producing for animal feed are to support the demand for the animal proteins. Now, if we increase the population, we've got more demand for animal or for human food. Can we take some of that land that's producing feed and move it over? Absolutely. But that's where we turn into, we put on the forage cap now instead of the ruminant nutritionist cap. So up to now, we've really been thinking as ruminant nutritionists and almost as economists of food versus feed, and then how can we grow enough feed to, pr to produce these animals? The monogastric, where you were talking a minute ago, that's an animal where, where you're always going to have to produce feed. So you're going to have a base level of feed production that you're always going to have to have whenever you're eating chicken, whenever you're eating pork. And those are going to be your main two. Those are the two big monogastric protein sources outside of fish, but fish gets into a little different area. So we're going to produce feed for those two. That's going to be the same no matter what. Ruminant animals are going to be different because let's say that we need to increase the food demand, the animal protein demand of humans from ruminant animals. We don't have to set aside land to grow feed for them. We have an option at that point. And that we can, that, this is where we can really geek out and get into the digestive system. The monogastric, I mean, all, well, let's throw this one out there. This, this is my teaching model. All animals are monogastric. Monogastric is simply one stomach. All animals have one stomach. What we ter term monogastric animals is what we say simple stomachs. And, and you know this, Peter. I'm just telling for your audience. We, um, simple stomachs. They're, they're non-compartmentalized. It's a stomach like you and I have. Now, the chickens, they don't have a stomach quite like that, but that's a whole different can of worms. But they have some of the same principles. I compare us to pigs the most because digestively, we're almost identical. 
So pigs have almost the same digestive system we do. You know what you and I can eat. If you and I go to Chili's or go to, you know, name your restaurant and eat a salad, we're not getting much out of that meal. There's a reason that salads are normally recommended on doctor's diets. I'm not saying it's a good thing, not saying it's a bad thing. The reason they recommend them is you're not getting much out of that. You're adding a lot of indigestible material into your system. So you're triggering the hormonal um, relationships of satiety. Your body's saying, okay, I have material, I'm full, but you're not actually providing anything to the body. The body's not breaking it down and getting any carbohydrates or getting any proteins out of it. It's mainly just there to trigger those tensile receptors and saying, I have material, I'm full, I don't need to eat anymore. A ruminant animal is totally opposite. They have a compartmentalized stomach and true ruminants are gonna have four compartments. The first two are kind of conjoined. So the ruminant and the reticulum are kind of conjoined. They operate the same. Then you have an omasum and then an abomasum. Well, we can kind of relegate the abomasum off to the side. The abomasum is minding your stomach. That, that's their true stomach. That's minding your stomach. It's the front part that we want to pay attention to because that, that conjoined compartment, that rumen, the conjoined rumen and reticulum, is a big micro vat. Think about a 55-gallon drum full of liquid and bacteria. And... It's the bacteria in the sense of we want these bacteria because these are the bacteria that can break down cellulose. And that's where their digestive system differs is where I feed a blade of grass to a pig, that same blade of grass that went in is going to come out. It's going to be crunched up. It's going to be broken down. It's going to have mechanical digestion. But the same thing that went in is going to come out. Nothing's really going to leave it. I put that blade of grass into a ruminant animal. That blade of grass does not come out. We have bacteria within the rumen that are able to secrete a class of enzymes called cellulases. And that class of three different enzymes that work together in concert will actually break down that cellulose. And once they break down that cellulose, the base component of cellulose is glucose. So that's no different than you and I eating corn and taking that endosperm of corn, which was starch, its constituent molecule is glucose. That ruminant animal takes cellulose from a blade of grass, breaks it down to, to its constituent molecule, and it's glucose. At that point, now we're working with apples and apples. So if we go from that really small physiological state and then zoom back out to an ecological state, what we're saying is the simple stomach animals, the monogastric animals, we have to grow feed for them. The ruminant animals, now we can start to use what agriculturalists will call marginal lands. Lands that are not suitable for food or feed production. And they get into land classes. So, you know, when you think food or feed production, you're thinking of very flat land, very black soil, very fertile land. You know, corn above your head. We're, we're thinking this land that has got to produce crops because that is the prime land. Ruminants don't have to have that. We can take the marginal lands, the ones that have too much of a slope, the ones that are rocky, the ones that are depleted of nutrients, the really sandy, the really red soils. All of those are able to grow vegetation. They're just not human edible vegetation. We're not going to be growing corn and soybeans. We're not going to be growing strawberries and carrots. We're not going to be growing all of those things that you and I are accustomed to, but they're still going to grow vegetation. That vegetation then can go through a ruminant animal, and now we're taking quote-unquote unproductive land, marginal land, unproductive land, and we're getting something that's human usable out of it. One of the, the way I approach it is monogastrics, pigs, us, other animals with simple stomachs or close to it. Any animal without that pre-gastric fermentation hardware and system must be fed protein, and it has to be true protein. Absolutely. Um, needs to be fed carbohydrates. Well, no, sorry. We'll, we'll take that back. Needs to be fed fat. Does need to be fed fat. Needs to have some type of energy source. 
Yes. And, and so if we just look at a human being and say, okay, there, there are essential amino acids, there are essential fatty acids, there are essential minerals, there's no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. If we switch over to ruminant animals, they're, it's crude protein at this point. They can use right. non-protein nitrogen, which is a critical issue. Um, you put too much fat into a ruminant and bad things happen. And we're talking, you know, like approaching 5% crude ether yes. extract yes. or five, something. 5% is about that critical limit. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, modern dairy systems, I've seen research where they're tr trying to get bypass fat for various uh, things, but just in, in, in terms of sheep, beef, dairy, uh, sorry, sheep, beef, goats, other ruminants, not right. the high production level. Um, and there are two forms of carbohydrate that are essential in a ruminants diet. They have to have both structural and non-structural yes. in order for that rumen to function effectively. Correct. So let's talk first about the not the 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 crude protein okay that non-protein nitrogen utilization which is critical ecologically and going Absolutely. forward in humanity's future and then we'll come back to the structural versus non-structural carbohydrate in a ruminants diet okay so when we talk about crude protein in the ruminant animal it, it's not that the animal itself is so so different and I say that for, it's something that I've had to come to terms with in terms of teaching this subject. We, we instill in ourselves that they don't have an amino acid requirement. They don't have a protein requirement. And it de depends on whether you talk about that effectively or physiologically. And so to say that they're 100% different than the pig, that the pig requires amino acids, the ruminant animal does not. I, I would disagree with that. From the perspective of on the physiology, the ruminant animal does have that required for the amino acids. And what you're getting at, Peter, and what I want to get across to your audience is, yes, you are correct, because practically they don't. Physiologically, they do require those. Practically, they don't. And that's because of what's happening in that large fermentation chamber. So in that ruminant reticulum, you've got all of these different classes of bacteria, of protozoa, of fungi. You've got an entire community, an entire microbiome or an entire biome within this animal that's functioning. And that's where ruminant nutrition exists is in that biome because you take that biome away and this animal is like any other animal. What Peter was getting at in terms of the true protein versus non-protein nitrogen is to a great extent, we don't have to provide a ruminant animal with true protein. And what we mean by true protein is you and I require a protein that has to be has to be structurally formed as protein. So it, it has to be something like a globulin or something like an albumin. It has to be a true protein that has the primary, secondary, tertiary, potentially quaternary structures composed of all these amino acids, has to have the correct orientation because we require those amino acids to be absorbed directly out of the small intestine. The rumen animal is on a different playing field. This is where we truly look at the rumen animal as an upcycler because what we do is we put in nitrogen and that can be in the form of true protein. That can be in the form of non-protein nitrogen. Honestly, if you had anhydrous ammonia and you had a way to get it in the animal, it would work. I mean, it, all it has to be is elemental nitrogen because what's happening is we've got this competition or this community going on within the rumen that these microbes are going to break apart whatever nitrogen is there. So whatever nitrogen comes in, whether it be an amino acid or protein or non-protein nitrogen, it's going to get broken down. Most of that has to do with the enzymes that they have available. You've got an overabundance of ureases and those ureases and some others, I mean, you've got some proteases, but that urease is going to take non-protein nitrogen, usually in the form of urea. Um, but ultimately what we're going to do is the breakdown is going to take this nitrogen down to ammonia. 
there are many reasons why ammonia is the final end product. The biggest one is, other than the enzymes and the whole community function, is that this rumen, because of all the fermentation that's happening, think of fermenting beer or fermenting alcohol. In any fermentation process, you're releasing a lot of hydrogen. So chemically speaking, you're in a highly reduced environment. You're dropping the pH. You're releasing a lot of hydrogens. Part of this was a developmental perspective. Developmentally, the rumen has to have a way to get rid of those hydrogens. And anytime it has the ability to, it will. Ammonia is one way to do that. So the ammonium ion, if we take that nitrogen down to an ionic form, we can get rid of four hydrogens for every nitrogen that came in. Shuttle it over to the ammonium ion. Well, that's a good way to function because now we're tying up some of those hydrogens and we're modulating pH. So in that way, nitrogen acts as a buffer to the room and we're stable because that stability is going to allow for more fermentation. What we're getting at from the protein perspective, though, is once we take it down to that ammonia, those microbes are not altruistic. And this is one thing that I teach my classes. They're not altruistic. The microbes are not the Salvation Army. They're not there for the benefit of the animal. They have no idea the animal is there. All they know is this is my little world. I'm going to do what I have to do to survive. They have a biological imperative themselves. They have to grow and they have to reproduce. The way that they grow and reproduce is they have to grow their own cells. Well, if we think back to a cellular biology perspective, growing of cells requires fats and proteins. That, that's the majority of a cell. Of all of the components of a cell, you're going to have some type of lipid layer of a membrane, and you're going to have a lot of proteins that build it up. Those proteins are going to get incorporated into those bacterial cells. So that what they're going to do is after we've gotten rid of the hydrogen and buffered the system, now we're going to take that ammonia and we're going to merge it with some type of carbon, and that's going to give us amino acids. Well, the carbon is coming in in a ruminant diet, usually from carbohydrates, because what they've done there is you have those cells and those amylases that have broken down those carbohydrates, and we're getting down to just basic carbons, what we in ruminant nutrition call carbon skeletons. These carbon skeletons work very well with ammonia because if you look at a carbohydrate, all you have to do is tack an ammonia onto it, tack an amino group, now you have an amino acid. So they're very similar structurally, just that nitrogen tacked on. So what the micros do is they tack on that nitrogen, now we have an amino acid. That amino acid can then be taken up by the cell, the cell grows. We take in enough of these amino acids, we start to produce proteins, the cell starts growing. As the cell grows, it gets large enough that it triggers a division. We get the cellular division. Now we've grown these microbes. So they have fulfilled their biological imperative. They've grown, they've reproduced. But by growing and reproducing, we've forgotten the final step in the biological imperative. And that is that the successive generation takes over. So as these cells have grown and reproduced, the older generations of these microbial cells eventually get to the end of their useful life. So these cells die. Mm. Once these cells die, they're going to become part of the rumen liquor or the ruminant fluid, the rumen fluid that's going to filter out of the ruminal reticulum through the omasum to the abomasum. Well, once a, bacteri a bacterial cell gets the abomasum, it's no different than if you had given that animal true protein to begin with. So ultimately what we've done, we've gone a long way around and talked about a lot of chemistry and physiology in that rumen. But what we've done is as long as we had a nitrogen enter and it was able to meet carbons, we produced amino acids in the rumen. Those bacteria produced them, not for the animal, but for themselves. They produced those to grow. They possess the enzymes necessary to put those together to grow their own cells. As those cells then start to die off, they're filtered out of the rumen, and the animal then benefits from them. The reason that we talk about them being upcyclers in that way, though, is what is the value of that bacterial cell? And so we have to put what's known as a biological value on that. All proteins have some type of biological value. It's a matter of how biological value, by definition, is how well does this protein match the needs of the animal? And when we say how well does it match the needs, what is the amino acid level? So if the protein matches the amino acid level of the muscular tissue of that animal 
It's the exact same. We would say it has a biological value of 100. All right? We never get that. that. That never happens. But our back, ruminal bacteria have a biological value of somewhere around 80, 80, 82, 85, depends on the bacteria. But we say that they average around 80. Out of most of the proteins that you can feed an animal, very few of those feeds hit 80. So we say that they're upcyclers in that they can take those marginal lambs that we discussed earlier with some of these very low quality proteins, you know, basically just ammonia, just urea, or just something nitrate that the plant would have taken up and it didn't store it as a protein. It didn't produce plant protein. It just stored the nitrogen. They can then take that and make amino acids out of it and get about 80% of what they need for their own growth. So, so when, Let's just imagine a cow eating grass. The dry matter in that grass, you can think of, you know, just divide it into either cell walls or cell contents. And the contents are readily digestible. Um, and, And the cell walls then vary in their digestibility and never completely digestible, even in a ruminant. So you mentioned before the blade of grass going into a pig coming out of blade of grass. Um, cows, sheep, goats, any ruminant, they're not a flow-through system. So it, 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 it's going to take a while for that inge- the feed that they eat to be broken down sufficiently to then leave through the rest of the system. So before that, we have rumination mechanical. Right. Um, we also have enzymatic activity, but then primarily it's the microbial activity that's going to break that down, extract whatever information, uh, information, <laughs> feed value, nutrition. Well, information, yeah, probably, but that's not what I was meaning. Um, but and and to your point about practically versus physiologically at the end of the day the majority of the energy that the cow digests absorbs from her digestive system is coming from fat despite yeah. the fact that very little fat came in in the diet so the 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 principal products of rumen fermentation are the r- microbial protein and the volatile fatty acids. Yes, very much. So. I mean, it's, as far as carbohydrates go, the, the only where the carbohydrates fit into the ruminant system is to create the fats. You're exactly correct. I mean, that's 90 plus percent is going to come from fats just in the form of fatty acids and specialized fatty acids, we'll say. So, so we have this, this teeming microbial fermentation process that the host animal, not to anthropomorphize this too much, but the, the host animal ends up harvesting the byproducts as well as the microbes um, because they could flow down through. They're certainly small enough to, to leave the, the um, reticula rumen and enter into the omasum and, and then on to the abomasum just with the fluid that leaves. Um, so it's a, it's a critical link in the ecological energy flow because we've got photosynthesis produces cellulose, primary carbohydrate in the biosphere. There's some other components, obviously, but then we have only these, you know, what no vertebrate produces cellulase. And, and so we, we have this, how many, different ruminants are there we've been talking cows that's you know oh, we're, but there's, I there's many ruminants were in the 70s as far as species go that are currently living today now that doesn't count and we count prehistoric i mean we're dealing with many many animals in terms of taxonomic development these are highly developed species cattle are actually the least developed of all of the ruminants if we get Mm -hmm. into the taxonomy i mean they're the simplest of the ruminants you want to get into really specialization let's look at the deer Mm -hmm. i mean those animals they have truly developed themselves to fit into a niche as a browser versus a grazer exactly a browser versus a grazer so you know 
even their anatomy has changed and not necessarily that they've grown extra things, but just the shapes and forms of different things on their anatomy. When we talk about development of the ruminant animals, yes, I mean, all of them are highly developed, highly specialized, but when we look at browsers versus grazers in terms of what can they use on marginal non-human food producing areas, you've got to hand it to the browsers. They can get it done. Hmm. So, and, and back to what we started on with this either or kind of false dichotomy that, that there, I'm, I'm very tired of it uh, I, uh, across the board. I, us and them, I find less than useless. Um, and when we get to agriculture, we need to understand, and this is a point that I would make, and I'll offer it to you for your response, okay. that ruminant animal agriculture is thoroughly integrated into all of the agricultural and therefore food systems globally. It just looks different. So yeah. depending on where you are. So here in Western Oregon, we produce a lot of grass seed. Well, at some points of the year, in the annual cycle, those, those seed fields are grazed by animals to manage the vegetation on those seed fields for a specific purpose. Uh, not too far away from where you are, we have winter wheat pasture. And so it's possible to have a field that's going to be harvested for wheat that season still be grazed by animals earlier in the season. Absolutely. And then you were talking about byproduct feeds. So even when we produce a human utilizable food crop, we produce a significant amount of non-edible material. My line is you can't get milk from almonds, but you can from almond hulls. Absolutely. <laughs> In California. And, and honestly, as we go to the future and I say this, and I, I'm, I promise I'm not leaving my forage roots by any means. I mean, I still believe forage is the base for ruminant production. But as we move to the future, I think the byproducts are actually the bigger area, especially you, if you look to the more populized areas of the world. Let, let's look at the Southeast Asia. Where are their ruminants mainly functioning? It's mainly on byproducts. They, they don't have the grazable arable land where they're grazing that was mainly on the byproducts and so i think honestly you know you say that you're tired of the you us versus them i agree with you on that point i i agree that they're integrated into the system i would say that we need to remove the stigma of some of these byproducts can be fed to ruminants i mean look at them as a trash compactor it's okay to do that well not even a compactor i mean a converter right what what was converter, the, the what was the star trek thing the replicator right you push the buttons there and out go. comes there the food <laughs> and and we we can feed these organic materials into this bioreactor taking all the romance out of it and out comes milk and uh, meat and as well as other byproducts from the animal itself um, but then we also globally need to recognize that there's a significant portion of the poorest population in the world that are pastoralists. Absolutely. And that's where their food and security, such as it is, as well as economic potential comes from. Some parts of the world, the only property women can own are livestock. And so that then becomes an economic uh, opportunity. Um, I mentioned before that you know, over half of the world's fertilizer comes from manures. Most of that's coming from ruminants. You get rid of the ruminants, where's the fertilizer going to come from? And oh, by the way, if you're saying you're going to get rid of the 14 or so percent of the crude protein supply that for humanity that comes or no, it's sorry, uh, from ruminants, it's, it's like what is it, 30 some percent of humanity's protein ends up coming from all livestock products. I believe that's correct. Uh, but that's still less than what comes from cereals. Yes. Um, and, and so if you're going to get rid of that portion the, from the animal source foods, it's not a one for one swap. 
you, no, you've got by no means is it. You've got to dramatically then increase the food crops to try to make up for it. And it's arguable that you could, because as we get more advanced in our understanding of human protein nutrition, we begin to recognize more and more that we need far more animal source food in our diet than we've been told we do. And, and so this then becomes a, a argument for further discussion. But um, tractors, you draft animals, half of the world's farmers still depend on draft animals. Um, is something like a billion people in the world still depend on burning dung, mm-hmm. which one, what does that do to the nutrients the dung contained? Number one, right. number two, it's a tremendous source of indoor pollution and therefore respiratory disease for children and women. Um, there's lots of things we need to do to improve. And that's something I, I think we should look for ways to encourage the young people. No offense. I'm pointing at myself. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm old. Um, so those sorts of things are things that pe- we need to work toward improving so that more of humanity can prosper. Um, and, and these other arguments that come against us, I think, actually go opposite that. They actually inhibit development and prosperity. Which I could I could agree with you on that. Puts them into a whole nother category as far as I'm concerned spiritually. But um so we we have we we have this this system and we've spoken a lot about beef and I don't know the sheep and goat industry in Texas, but um let's just stay with beef for the time. I, I know okay. a little bit about the wildlife industry, which is interesting. Wildlife is big. We're actually in Texas. We're um, among, I don't remember if we're the top or not. Uh, one of my colleagues is really going to get upset with me for not remembering this. I know we're in the top three in U.S. sheep and goat production. I just don't remember exactly where we rank. Yeah. Um, but when we're going to utilize byproduct feeds of whatever nature, or if we're going to utilize cereals that are arguably human edible, but as part of a ration for um, a, a finishing animal, right? it's important for us to remember that that animal was produced out of a cow-calf operation that was almost entirely fueled by those high fiber forages without it, it was truly a pastoral system as you put earlier it, it, your cow calf you're not going to be able to get away from I, I say this there's research out there where they're trying to get away from it but i would argue that you're not going to get away from a pastoral system it's going to be a forage-based system cost is as you mentioned earlier the the costs involved absolutely um and and unlike swine and poultry in the united states at least and probably so in europe maybe less so in australia new zealand beef is not vertically integrated no no not at all and that's honestly part of that's where your cost in terms of buying your protein source at the grocery store comes in is the lack of vertical integration. But it's also the nature of how you raise the animal. Vertical integration in the U.S., I, I'll, I'll preface that within the U.S., vertical integration was easy for sheep, already for pigs, for chickens. You've got animals that are raised in confinement. I'm not arguing against that. I, I mean, there are reasons to do that. But you've got animals that are raised in confinement on small areas of land, in proximity to where they need to be processed with shorter life cycles. It makes sense. You've got an animal that's got to survive 18 to 24 months. If we're talking about a finisher animal in the US, beef animal, it's got to survive 18 to 24 months from birth to processing. And it's not possible to raise them on small area of land in confinement. 
you you can't put them in a house in some type of facility and deliver the feed to them because of their digestive system. I mean, you have to have umpteen acres to go out and harvest every day to then bring the wagon in and deliver a green chop. It doesn't make that much sense. A lot cheaper to have them harvest it themselves than it is to bring it to them. So the, it, it's, I don't think vertical integration is really the answer there. And that's, that goes into part of it is the lack of vertical integration leads to some of these, it leads to some of these issues and it resolves some of these issues. I, I think that cattle uniquely are distributed in every state of the United States. And it's going to look very different in Oregon as opposed to Texas, as opposed to New York State. Absolutely. Um, fundamentals are there, but um, where you have winter, you have a very different than if you're in a part of the country where arguably you could graze for 330 or maybe even you know 360 days out of the year. That, sure. um, but again, you you have this. You, you have to have a large herd of mama cows with replacement females with a few bulls to produce the crop of animals that are going to go into finishing, which are primarily going to be the male animals. The, some of the females may, and that depends on market conditions and decisions for other reasons. Um, and those animals, as you say, are going to spend what, four to six months at the end of their life cycle in a feeding system reaching close to mature body size right a, but but the rest of your time you're on a grass-based system you're on a plant-based grass-based forage-based system plant-based plant i like that oh yeah let's use that phrase plant-based um there seems to be a lot there. Some friends of mine refer to plant-biased nutrition, but... Um, plant-biased? Oh, I like that. <laughs> you're free to use it. Um, <laughs> so we, we, we've we covered a bit of territory. Uh, I just want to emphasize this, this ecological foundation for the requirement for ruminant animal agriculture first of all one of the one of the ways that we could lower the impact globally of ruminant animal agriculture is to improve its efficiency sure. and productivity so in the united states i think we've got something like 10% of the world's beef animals but we produce 20% of the world's beef and and we're a small portion of the global emissions due to beef animals. And so you start to look for other countries that have bigger herds in some cases, or maybe less, but they have a bigger impact because they're just not as efficient. They're not as productive. And somehow people have equated they've lost sight of the benefits of efficiency in yes. agriculture. And honestly, that becomes one of the biggest predicaments we have. And that's, that also goes back to the whole discussion you and I've had during this time is the whole, the us versus them, the, you know, the plant-based plant-based versus being fed is there's so many little things in there we do have efficiency. One of the things that the reason we have efficiency is that final four to six months. So if we talk about greenhouse gas emissions, they're lower in those four to six months than they are in the first 12 to 18, mainly because of what they're being fed, because of the fate of some of those carbons as they move through the rumen. Does that mean that we need to take all the animals and put them on feed, put them on a cereal-based ration? Well, no, that's not feasible. That's not feasible when you're fighting biology. Every fight biology, you're going to lose. You, you can't yeah. fight biology. So Nature the final four or six months are fighting biology when it comes to beef animals. 
but they improve efficiency. So it's it's drawing that line. It's dancing that line, riding that fence between the pastoral systems yeah. and the finishing systems. Yeah, that, that was a point we didn't come back to is that the requirement to provide both structural and non-structural carbohydrate in the right amounts yes. to a ruminant animal. So if you just filled an animal up with cellulose. If you just fill an animal up with cellulose, they're done. They're done. You can go ahead and write those off the taxes. That animal will not be there next year. They, they are not going to exist. And, and the problem with that is the structure is not structure. What we're discussing is, is the carbon tied up in the cell wall of the plant or is the carbon in the actual contents of the plant? If it's in the actual contents, it's what we term soluble. It's part of the cell solubles. It's immediately available. Once it hits the rumen, they're able to immediately ferment it. They're going to convert it into fats. They're going to take the carbohydrates or whatever the carbon was in its form, convert it to fats, those volatile fatty acids. That's an immediate process. The process of cellulose, so taking those cell wall carbons and moving them into fats, takes longer. Part of that is the fact that those enzymes take longer to function. So it takes longer for a cellulase to function on cellulose. And the other thing is every bacteria that you have in that rumen is opportunistic. It's, it's ease. If I put a plate in front of you available with silverware and I put a plate over here in a lockbox that you've got to solve the combination to eat, you're going to eat the plate with the silverware first, then you'll solve the combination. Well, that's essentially what's happening with the soluble versus the structural is they're going to take advantage of what's easily available, then they're going to work on the rest of it. Where it functions in that they need both is you need quick energy. So there are certain bodily functions that require quick energy, a sudden burst of energy. Then you also need sustained energy. And a lot of that goes into the production of the protein because it takes a certain amount of time for those proteins to get down to ammonia that can then be built back up into amino acids. So you need carbons to peak. So concentration of carbon to peak at the same time that nitrogen peaks. And so what you're doing is you're providing different levels of different solubilities and you've got different peaks. So you'll have a short nitrogen peak up front of that soluble nitrogen. You need some soluble carbon to go with it. You've got that long-term nitrogen. So the nitrogen that was a little more difficult to get a hold of, you need some long-term carbon that meets it too. And as mentioned before, it's not a flow through system. So the long no, it, it takes it time. Takes... We're we're looking at a minimum of twelve hours that it's going to spend in the room and doing this process. In most cases, forty-eight to seventy-two hours. And and the, if you feed a lot of poorly digestible feed, then that's going to lower the ability of that animal to eat more. And yes. then so you're now fighting this downward spiral. Of Absolutely. Less and less energy and, and input. So um, <laughs> we could keep going, but okay. I, um, <laughs> no, I, th <laughs> um, oh, I'll talk as long as you want to. You're not bothering me a bit. <laughs> thank you. So I've given you, uh, I've given you a lot of questions and opportunity to, to respond to those. It's only fair to turn the tables and say, what might you, like to hear from me or ask me or do you have some challenges for me to kind of you should pardon the expression ruminate on <laughs> so where do you think we should be in terms of ruminant animal production what what should we be emulating is the u.s system where we need to be or should we be trying to merge in some of the systems of other countries yeah, great question. Because, um, uh, you know, in the forage community, we fell in love with New Zealand for a while. And, you know, mm -hmm. that was that was it. And there are similar things that we could name. I think that what we have to do is make sure that the individual managers know all the tools that are available to them. 
so that they can make the best sustainable system for their operations. And there's lots of things that go into that. And neighboring operations could look completely different, right? Because there are two different managers involved. Um, I think that because of our costs and opportunities, we're always going to look different than a country like New Zealand that has to ship its products 5,000 miles to its first customer and also doesn't have the energy industry to provide for things that we have. Now, we could talk about all that, but they were forced through that situation of, of geography to develop the systems that they developed. Now, you and I both know that we can drive around the United States and see a world of potential. Mm -hmm. We just, it, we, we haven't begun to utilize our resources to the degree that they could. So when people ask me, for example, if I get too close to the, the, the carnivore community and people who are existing on entirely animal source food diet, one of the things that comes at them is, well, we can't feed the whole world in all animal source food diet. Number one, we don't need to. Number two, animal source foods come in a lot of different forms, right? It's not all beef. Number three, right. we haven't begun to utilize the resources that are currently available. So we, you know, we got a lot of development space to, to go into. Um, I think as we go forward, um, we're going to realize more and more how we have to integrate grazing animals back into our cropping systems so that we can preserve or enhance the soil itself okay. that is going to, is on a bad trajectory globally. Um, you know, uh, I think it was UN said something about 60 harvests left. They said that a couple harvests ago. And, you know, I don't know. But I do know that we're losing and we're still struggling against soil erosion, wind or water and depletion of organic matter content in our agricultural soils. So I, I think that that's something that also needs to be given greater merit is how are we going to do that reintegration of livestock into our cropping systems? You know, we kind of went through this okay. specialization phase in U.S. agriculture, probably beginning in the 40s, maybe post-war, and then certainly accelerated in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, to the point today where you can run through Illinois and for miles never see a fence, right? Or um, it's like strange disease that took out all the hedgerows. I don't, what, what was that about? Um, <laughs> so, and, and, but I would also argue that part of that was also driven by some policies that were informed by certain worldviews and and I think all of that needs to be reevaluated going forward. Um, you know I I have started to get in touch with these sustainable livestock um, mm -hmm. communities efforts and they're global in nature. Um, and so I remember one that talked about just, taking standard sort of information, nothing fancy for us, uh, applying basic extension kind of program. In Nepal, apparently, their dairy is based on buffalo. Okay. Okay. So they using just standard sort of dry cow treatment were able to take the mastitis infection rate from like 75% to less than 15% in a very short period of time. Wow. So now we can begin to talk about animal welfare, right? We can talk about profitability, right? We can talk about sustainability and we can talk about food quality because all those things 
all come out of that. And it's just very direct stuff. So we don't, we should not entertain the idea of taking, forgive me, animal science 101, forage science 201, agronomy 301, and just ship those bo books over to these different cultures and say, here, good, problem sorted, all done. <laughs> and And nor should we think about saying, okay, this is how we do it in central Texas or in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. Therefore, that's how you should do it. And, and a lot of these issues have a lot to do with things outside of agriculture per se. They've got to do with things like rule of law and, and, and you know, property rights and, and, and infrastructure. I learned that one all too well recently when I was, um, I was visiting Moldova. I was on a USAID mission over there speaking to dairy farmers. I learned that one all too well. Um, they still have holdovers of the Soviet Union, and a lot of their practices were holdover from that era. Mm -hmm. So, again, I, I think what we have to get better at is one of the things that I, is driving my Ruminati vision, which is that we need people who are have expertise in all these different areas, but they have the ability to communicate with each other, you know, bridge the gaps between the silos. And, and part of that is so that we can answer people that are making these ludicrous claims about how beef is killing us and it's killing the planet. And the most impactful thing you can do is to stop for the climate is to stop eating beef. And I have a phrase for that. It's male bovine fecal matter. <laughs> There's absolutely no truth to either one of those statements. doesn't matter. These people make these statements. And we have people that can answer about the health and they can answer about the actual emissions and they can answer about what role, whatever those actual emissions are, play in climate change, right? And but but they tend to be isolated and and they tend not to be able to respond to that kind of attack. And those attacks are ramping now. Yes. Um, and and so I I want people I want people to learn that you know eating animal source food from ruminant animals does not represent a health threat to them or their families. You're not going to kill yourself. Uh, it does not, in fact, represent a, you know, imminent threat to the environment. In fact, they're essential for enhancing, if not preserving the environment. Um, and then, you know, we could talk about the welfare of people involved in that we used to talk about something called primary industry. Yes. We don't talk about that anymore. No, we don't. No, we don't. No. No, the only place that I've seen that used anymore is, um, I forget if it's Australia or New Zealand. There's a still agriculture yeah. and primary industries. Yeah, yeah. So uh, maybe we need to rehabilitate that phrase as well and get people thinking that, you know, maybe it's not a good idea to think about, you know, supporting an economy on service industry uh, um, <laughs> but maybe that's for another visit so uh, dr smith thank you for taking the time i look forward to the next time that we can get together at one of our various um conferences if i can help in any way with what you're doing at tarleton state university please let me know um Thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I hope to get to do it again. <laughs>